point of these conversations is not to create a divisive world because we want to remove divisions we want equality we want fair mindedness we want everybody to have the same opportunities no matter what and i think for that we have to hear why some people are not having the same opportunities or they might have certain obstacles and unless we hear that how do we address it and i think that's the crucial bit we all are in this together hi my name is rongan chasji Welcome to Feel Better Live More. This week's conversation is about a really important topic and one that I honestly don't think gets spoken about enough within the health and wellness space. How should we talk about discrimination, bias and race, particularly with our children? Now, to be really clear, this conversation is relevant to each and every single one of us, whether we have children or not, because the themes within it are universal. But I do think it's going to be especially helpful for parents or teachers who have ever felt confused or conflicted about how to talk to children about race. My guest is the brilliant Dr. Pragya Agarwal. She's a behavioral scientist, an academic, a journalist, and an award-winning author who has written widely on unconscious bias, prejudice, racial inequality, parenting, and gender. And her most recent book, Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race, is a super practical, readable manual for people of all backgrounds and ethnicities. Now, I think many people actually want to get involved in the conversation around race and discrimination, but can sometimes feel fearful and scared of saying the wrong thing. I had these common sentiments at the top of my mind when having this conversation with Pragya a few months back, and we both tried really hard to make the conversation as inclusive, compassionate, and non-judgmental as possible. We begin talking about at what age is it appropriate to bring up the subject of race with children and why ignoring differences in race or skin color may not be helpful if we want our children to thrive in a diverse multicultural world. We also discuss the importance of proactively talking about race and privilege with our children no matter what their skin color. In fact, research shows that when children witness racism or even see it in the media, it can have adverse effects on their health and well-being, even if it's not directed at them. Pragya and I both share our own personal experiences of racism and why an open dialogue on these issues is vital. We also talk about a wide range of related issues, including unpacking what bias really means, understanding where it comes from, and how to know what the right terminology is to use when it comes to race. As a parent myself, I really love the way that Pragya explains how we can help our children stay comfortably curious, but non-judgmental, how to teach them to recognize and address unfairness, and how to discourage them from shame and guilt, and instead promote empathy and allyship. This episode really is a hugely practical guide for anyone of any skin color who wants to learn the methods, tools, and vocabulary that we can use to talk about people's differences. This really was a wonderful conversation, and my hope is that it contributes to a more equal and connected world. Before we get started, just a quick shout out to one of today's sponsors who really are essential 
in order for me to put out weekly episodes like this one. Four Sigmatic is a wellness company that is probably best known for its delicious, crash-free mushroom coffee. Now, I first became aware of this company when I was in Los Angeles about 18 months ago. I was staying with one of my friends and he made us both some Four Sigmatic mushroom coffee, which I really enjoyed. I also noticed that I didn't get the typical highs and lows that you often get with some coffees. Now, they also make many other products that are designed to help support your immune system. And the one that I'm really enjoying at the moment is their cacao plant-based protein powder. It contains lots of immune-supporting nutrients, and I'll often use it to make myself a cacao protein smoothie alongside my breakfast or after I've come in from a run or had a workout. It's crafted with pure plant protein and contains seven functional mushrooms and adaptogens like ashwagandha and reishi, as well as real organic cacao. It contains no fillers whatsoever, and it's really, really tasty. I think they are a fantastic brand, and they stand behind all of their products. Love every sip or get your money back. Now, I've arranged an exclusive offer with them on their best-selling proteins. This is just for listeners of my podcast. You can receive up to 40% off on their best-selling protein bundles, or 10% off everything else using the codes LIVEMORE. Now, to claim this deal, you must go to foursigmatic.com forward slash LIVEMORE. Again, this offer is only available for my podcast listeners and is not available on their regular website. Go to F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash LIVEMORE and get yourself some delicious plant-based proteins. Full discount applied at checkout. And now my conversation with the wonderful Pragya Agarwal. Now, I'm conscious that as we're having this conversation about bias, about race, about racism, and how it plays out in society, that you were born in India, I yes. believe? I've got Indian heritage. Both my parents were born in India. They came over here 1960s, 1970s. I was born and brought up in the UK. So I'm aware that we will probably bring, or certainly I will be bringing my own experience into this conversation. So let me expand upon that. With my kids, and my wife is, like myself, Indian origin, but born in this country. I don't feel at a young age... I wanted to talk about race. I didn't want to give it any um, visibility at all because I didn't want my kids to start seeing problems where problems didn't exist. But I'm now starting to change my view having read your book. What would you say, because I think a lot of people do feel that way, and how would you come back to them? I can relate to that experience in some way. So I came here as a young single parent. I really just wanted to fit in. I didn't want to draw any attention to the fact that I was different in any way because there were enough differences. I was in a predominantly male environment as a young academic. I was also a single parent and I just wanted to not draw attention to my skin color or my child to feel like they're any different. I talked a lot about feminism to her gender equality because growing up in India, that was really important to me. And I, but I realized slowly that this kind of colorblind approach is not the best way. Because even if when we are not drawing attention to it, 
that is still there because facial cues, skin color as a cue, people use that as a mark of categorization, as a mark of identification, as a mark of demarcation. That's how people make sense of this world. And that's the first cue that people have of people when you meet face to face. Children are also seeing this around them. They notice the skin color, they notice difference. They might not talk about it. They might not create any bias or prejudice around it, but they also pick up messages from media as they're growing older and from books about what is better and what is less, what is inferior. So these kind of hierarchies are forming in their brains from what they're seeing around them. They're making assumptions and stereotypes of certain people based on these kind of skin color associations. If we don't talk to them, they will form their own view of the world even if they don't say anything. They might have friends of all skin color, but they still have stereotypes that people of certain skin color behave like this or act like this. It is also possible that if we don't talk explicitly with our children, they might want to conform to the outside view. As they grow older, they want to have more associations with their peer group rather than their culture or their heritage. So they might actively try to dissociate from their culture and heritage to want to fit in because they don't, they might feel a certain shame or they might feel certain discomfort around how they have to act at home or around their culture and heritage. I think as children are growing older, we what we want for them is to be secure in their identities, whatever their identity is, to be able to talk about it explicitly so that they know that they are secure and comfortable in it, so that they go out in the world and be secure individuals, but also be allies to other people who are not as secure or might face other kind of racial bullying. Children have something called transductive reasoning. So they make generalized assumptions. If they have, if they see one person of a certain skin color either being racialized or facing racism or acting in a certain way, they might assume that all people from that kind of phrase or ethnicity act in the same way. That is how they make sense of the world when they start off with. So, so essentially what you're saying is this is out there kids are going to see it. And if we don't proactively bring it up with our children, they're going to draw their own conclusions. And those conclusions may potentially be problematic. Yes, absolutely. And if we don't help them or support them or question any assumptions they've made, how do we know that these assumptions have been made? And as they grow older, they can become deeply entrenched and ingrained before we have had a chance to address them. Children are not colorblind. So colorblind upbringing is really not the best approach. What we want to help our children see is that difference exists, but that difference should not be the basis for inequality in the world. They should also understand that there is some historic legacy of oppression, which means certain people might be treated differently in this world than other people. And that should not be the case. American Association of Psychology and Pediatrics have actually shown by research that not only children who face racism or racial bullying, but children who are bystanders or who see these this happening around them, it can have a huge detrimental effect to them as mental and physical beings, well-being. So we need to support all children, no matter what culture, background or ethnicity. So does that research say that if somebody has suffered racism themselves or if they have witnessed it, 
there's a negative impact on their health and well-being. Absolutely. And that the Pediatric Association in America is actually doing more work around it from case studies, but also other scientific research that, yes, witnessing racial bullying, even seeing it in media or even seeing this happening can really affect pe- children's well-being. Yeah, I mean, that's fascinating because that really then starts to really build a very strong case that we should be talking about it with our kids. Because I guess if we don't, and we try and pretend it's not happening, and they witness it, they're going to have to deal with that emotion, probably the confusion um, in their in their minds, in their bodies, which can manifest in so many different ways as they get older. Now, you mentioned um, identity and feeling secure. And there's something about that that really I felt when you said that, because I touched on this a couple of times on the podcast before, but I definitely, definitely moved away from my Indian heritage and culture as a teenager in my 20s. You know, I think many uh, immigrants will know the feeling. And I think your daughter, your eldest daughter, from from recollection, from my recollection of reading the books, I think she might have experienced something similar. But I felt very much, okay, mum and dad are bringing me up with a sort of Indian culture at home. At school, particularly at primary school, me and my brother were you know, maybe the only non-white kids at school, I think. Maybe there's one more family. And you want to fit in. Yeah, I did go to a diverse school, actually, in my teenage years, but I still, I wanted to be like my white friends, right? So I would almost eschew. You, you almost have a double life. You live the life at home, and you're doing the things the way uh, you're being brought up at home, and you live a, another life outside home. Now, maybe all teenagers do that to a certain degree. I don't know. But I know that that has caused me major problems in my life. Whereas now, I really embrace my Indian heritage. I'm so proud of it. Yeah, and I can relate so much to that. Even though I didn't, I wasn't born here or brought up here. I came here in very early 20s. But I was rejecting some of the my heritage still because I wanted to fit in and some of the toxic elements of Indianness or patriarchy. And I wanted to really reject that. But also there is, there was this internalized, I think, racism or racialization. If you grow up in India, there is, you face colorism. You also have this inherent kind of legacy of imperialism, which makes you feel like certain things here are much better or certain things about India are not as good. Um, you feel uncomfortable talking about your food in a way or talking about your culture because there's almost a shame certain sometimes associated with maybe it's not as good. Maybe people will make fun of it. I know my teenager, uh, my child, um, she was very young when she moved here, but she had done Indian classical dance while in India growing up. And she rejected that. She didn't want to do Indian classical dance anymore. She just wanted to be like people here, only read in English or speak in English. She forgot everything, how to say anything in Hindi, or we didn't speak Hindi at home because that just didn't happen. And I think, yes, over the years, I've realized how much that is really crucial to my sense of identity, but also her sense of identity. And now I have mixed heritage children who my husband's white, Scottish, and I am from India. And that becomes even more crucial for me to that really, they relate to their Indian part of their culture and heritage. And how do I do that in a way that is comfortable and confident to them so that they know that they're part Indian, they know that that's really 
a really important part of their identity. And I think it is so crucial for children to grow up with this really secure sense. Otherwise, as you say, they code switch, which is being something else at home and being something else outside. And that causes confusion and conflict. And that can be really, um, yes, as it's quite tr- troublesome, I think, as they grow older. I mean, if we look at it from a different perspective, if someone listening to this um, has got white skin and their partner, if they have a partner, has white skin and their kids have got white skin, why should they have this conversation with their kids? What is the onus on them to have it? Yeah, I think that's something that it it becomes tricky because often people of color have to start this conversation at a young age because they know they have this weight as a parent to the responsibility that they want their children to not face anything when they go outside. They worry about it. They're anxious about it sometimes. We live in a world where, of course, white people or white parents might not have those anxieties because that is the predominant culture of that we are living in. But as we talked about the research from American Association of Pediatrics or other research that's shown, children even who see bullying or racism witness it can also have an effect on their mental and physical well-being. So that is one reason for the child's mental well-being so that if they see something like that, they understand why this is happening, why some people are treated differently. It might happen to their friend as well, because they might go to a school where they have different friends from different cultures. But also, also all of us have to speak to our children about privilege and power, because we all have privileges. Our children are bring, being brought up with certain privileges, intersectionality of privilege. It could be race, it could be gender, it could be class, caste, education. White privilege exists, which means that white children are protected from certain things um, in terms of racism. And I think it's important to speak to them about how to leverage that privilege to be an ally, to be support other children who might not have those that privilege, who might face racism or racial bullying. Also, if we want to create a fair-minded, equal world, we want the cycle to stop somewhere, which means that we want our children to understand that they cannot perpetuate or in any way this cycle or continue this cycle in the future. And how do we do that? We can only do that if we start from a young age to make them aware that this we have to, they have they are have the power to create an equal world. They have the opportunity to care, create a more fair-minded equal world, which means that they have to treat people in an equal and fair-minded way. Yeah, so much to think about. Um, I I think it's such an important topic. And I think until, certainly for me, until I read your latest book, you know, just to see it written down, see a language, see a vocabulary around it, see the different ages and the recommendations you make for different ages. It was so useful. I'm I always want to be honest and 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 share things on this show to really try and connect with people. And, you know, I don't think I've spoken about this, but last year, so my kids are at a local school and there was a speaking festival. I, I won't say which one it was. Most people attending were, uh, they have white skin. 
And in my daughter's age category, I think there were six, no, there were six people competing for this, um, competing, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's to help kids, you know, speak in public and perform. And okay, so you've got to try and take out the biased dad part of this. So six people go up on stage and perform. Now, my daughter was genuinely excellent. Now, I'm a dad, so you would say, yeah, okay, well, of course you're biased. And yeah, I probably am biased towards my daughter and my kids, right? Naturally, like many parents are. But she was placed last. And what was really interesting is that there was shock in the room. And actually, many of the parents came up to my wife afterwards and saying, oh man, she was absolutely brilliant. I don't quite understand that. And the, the point is, it, was a, it caused real conflict for my wife and I. And I'm sure my daughter picked up on that. Because the judge was probably mid-70s, um, an elderly uh, lady with white skin who I think had been judging for years. I generally can't see how my daughter came sixth. It's not about where she came, because it's about just expressing who she is. But she was confused. We thought she'd be first or second. Not that we actually value that much stuff anyway. We really don't. But it's like then we were like, well, how do we say this? What do we say? I don't know that was racism. I can't say that for sure. And that's that's where this whole topic gets very tricky. Then you start to second guess yourself and you go, oh, it could have been something else. Of course it could have been something else. But I guess I will put my baggage from my upbringing and what I've experienced or perceived to have experienced over my uh, 40-ish years on this planet And I genuinely feel, as my wife does, that there was a racial element there. Now, I can't prove it. I was going to write to the festival and really compassionately and just express some concerns. And then I can't remember why I didn't. I think lockdown started. And, you know, we get busy. And then I I would think afterwards, should I have? I mean, then, because you could argue, I have been silent. I've allowed that without challenge to continue. And so I have a conflict in my head. Should I have done something different as a parent when I can't prove it? And then what do I say to my daughter? That is a really tricky situation to be in. And I can relate to that in many ways, in many situations with my child itself. And I think it's it's difficult. And that is one of the ways this this kind of manifests. It's a form of kind of microaggression because you don't know whether what you're feeling is valid enough or not, and whether if you say anything, you would feel like you're overreacting or others would feel like you're overreacting. And I suppose one of the reasons parents often don't say anything also is because already there is a bias, there's a perceived bias from parents that people feel that parents are going to be biased. You don't want to be one of those tiger parents who are kind of trying to go ahead and do it. But I can see from the situation, which my older child, because she played violin and a number of festivals, we know that how that that manifests there. It is it is an implicit bias that the judge could have carried. I think why on the issue of being silent, I think it is, again, very difficult. Yes, we do get busy. There have been situations when I wanted to write letters and I just think, 
oh, I'll just let it go this time because yeah. I it, it's exhausting, you know, to have to tackle these things again and again and so again. A lot of emotional energy yeah. in, in your body and your yeah. mind's yeah. touch. Should I do it? Should I not? What will they think? Am I am I causing a problem? Yeah. Am I raising an issue when there isn't one? Will she then be discriminated against next time because yeah. we've already, you know, made these these things go round your head. And that is exhausting. And yeah. I think that as a that people don't realize how parenthood as parenting children of color or being a parent of color is exhausting because you're carrying these emotions. If you, you're constantly wondering whether your child is treated differently. And that is, a, is not kind of because you're an anxious parent, but you don't want your children to face and these kind of issues at school. So I, is anybody being mean to you? I was speaking to a parent who's black and she was talking about how she had to take her child and put her into a private school because she felt that was a safer environment for her, even if it's not diverse, because they were more vocal about these issues. And schools try and cover this up. It's difficult to talk to your child because you don't want them to feel like a victim. And yeah. I think that is something we worry about as parents as well. And I think, how do we talk to our children in a way that we don't want them to feel like a victim or an oppressor? So depending on what context it is. I suppose just talking to our children that the world is not always fair, that there is bias in world, that people have certain stereotypes, that people carry, bring these biases into decision making, that even though they're supposed to be objective, not everybody's objective, and they might judge people differently, and that it's one person's perspective. That's pretty much how we handled it, actually. Yeah. We... Um... That's what we said. We and also really focused with her on how do you feel it went. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Daddy, I, I thought I really enjoyed it. Uh, I said, okay, do you, are you happy with the account of yourself? You gave, yeah. I said, well, that's good. Focus on that because ultimately all these things yeah. are opinions, and you're going to get a lot of opinions in life. Some opinions will be what you like, some you don't. But it's just one person's opinion, and that doesn't change who you are. It doesn't change how you feel about your performance. And frankly, that's a lesson I'm still learning in my early forties. And I think what you said there about you're second guessing and, you know, I agree. I think many people, unless you've experienced it, probably don't get it. So I was chatting this morning uh, with, with Gareth, who's sitting here videoing uh, the show. And it's really interesting. We were talking about this idea of shame. So I spoke to the guy called Vivek Murthy, uh, the former um, Surgeon General under... Mm -hmm. Obama in America on the podcast back in June. And I shared something publicly for the first time, which is I had an uncomfortable experience just before my second book was published, The Stress Solution, when I was in a meeting at Penguin. And they were talking about the plans for publication. And they said, wrong and look, um, you know, things are, you know, all, you know, really good news for this book. Uh, we've got really good distribution. Lots of the retailers are taking the book this time like they weren't for your first book. Um, and one, one major retailer in particular has agreed to stock the book. They wouldn't take your first book because they already had a book out by an Indian doctor on the shelves. And what I shared about it was that I heard it. I felt uncomfortable and then I buried it because I didn't know what else to do and no one else said anything. So we just went on with the meeting. But I remember, I remember getting on the train home afterwards and thinking about it and listening to a podcast and something I was listening to where the, the sentiment was basically, um, you know, 
make yourself so good that you can't be ignored, was what someone was saying. And I didn't necessarily think of it like that, but I remember absorbing it and going, you know what? I'm going to keep writing great books or as good as I can make. And so you've got no option but to stock my books. And actually now as the probably the biggest selling health author in the country, they all stock my books. But that's not a healthy emotion. That's not a nice way to feel because there is shame. And what Gareth was saying this morning when I was chatting to him, he says, I don't, I, I, explain that to me. Where does the shame come from? Because I don't get that. Is that something you feel needs to be brought up in this conversation? And what is your view on that? Hmm. Yeah, I can relate to that. And I think I have become more vocal about talking about these issues now. But for a long time, I try to not talk about my failures, perhaps, or anything I felt like that, because I felt like I had to prove myself, like I had to work 10 times as hard to be as visible and as taken as seriously than anybody who is not a young brown woman. <laughs> um, and I feel I feel like people of color have this this feeling like there is not much space for them. And I think through implicit attitudes and beliefs, they're made to feel aware that there's only space for one or two of us in a, in a, in anywhere. And so to, we have to fight for that space. And I think that also creates competition amongst sometimes people of minority ethnic communities because they know that there's only one or two. We have to be best and we have to compete against each other to get that one seat at the table. But we also have to work 10 times as hard to prove ourselves. We can't show vulnerability. We can't show weakness because we don't have the luxury to. We just don't have the luxury to. I think that maybe there is that cultural element to it because our of course, our parents knew that we had to work 10 times as hard to be taken seriously, that you don't, we don't talk about failure or we don't, there's a, that shame comes from that as well. We have to be and successful and we start associating our measure of our validity and our worth through how people perceive us, I think. That, and that, that is something that is just toxic for any human yeah. being when you get your value from what other people say mm -hmm. about you, I, I think it leads to, it can lead to a perception of happiness for a little while. But once you sort of scratch beneath the surface, there's, there's a lot of emptiness on the other side of that, I think. Yeah. And I think that is also because of the power hierarchies in the society about whose opinion do we value, whose opinion matters. You know, there is certain notion of white supremacy in it about which people are the gatekeepers, which people are deciding who's worth listening to, who's worth, whose books are worth stalking, whose books are worth putting, promoting, you know, all those things. So yes, it is because of the racialized power hierarchies in society. It's about who has the privilege to be like that. How many seats are there? Why can't we create a bigger table and put more seats at it rather than just having one seat? I know that when I was applying for age to agents, submitting to agents, somebody told me I already have an Indian author on my books. And I was like, all Indians are not the same. I'm writing about different things. Even if when we talk about inclusivity and diversity, it's so box ticking, it's so performative that there's only space for one of us on that table. So I think, yes, I think that's where all these feelings come from. 
But by talking about it, that's how we get change, right? Absolutely. Because the incident I'm talking about only happened two years ago, right? And I want to share that again because I want people to know that it doesn't matter where you are in life or what your perception of success is, it's still going on, it's still happening. Now, actually, I have addressed it. Now, I wrote a, I'm really proud of the letter that I wrote to the sort of my boss at Penguin, as it were, or not boss, but the, um, you know, the most senior person I'm in contact with there. And they were amazing. But what I did is I made sure my emotions, I'd made sure that my anger and judgment, and that was all processed. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a calm, rational letter sticking to the facts, not dealing with emotion. And I genuinely feel that the way I wrote that letter has had... uh, has actually contributed to the impact that it's had because they were great. Um, everyone who was at that meeting contacted me separately. A few people sent me a WhatsApp message saying, "Wrong, you know what? I still remember that happening. I felt uncomfortable and I didn't feel I could say anything either. Um, and so it's really interesting. Everyone remembered that moment, but nobody said anything. Now, everyone in that room are great people. I get on really well with them. They're fantastic at their job. I have nothing but positive things to say about them. So what's going on here where people are respectful. No one in that room would call themselves racist. I don't think any of them are. Okay, I would not call myself racist. Yet no one spoke up, including myself. Why is that? Is it so ingrained in us that we just don't feel we can? It's just the way it is. Yeah, it's just the way it is. That's how we accept it. Because we just think, that's the way it is. We just have to get over it. Yeah. We just have to deal with it. Um, and and I think there is a lot of discomfort talking about these things. I don't want to be the person who says something in case I'm wrong. I don't want to be the one creating a fuss. I don't want to be coming across as ungrateful. I think there is also a sense of gratitude and gratefulness sometimes to be accepted into some of the yeah. spaces that we think we don't belong to or we don't we are not worthy enough to be in that space maybe there's a sense of imposter syndrome that we all carry that am i really good enough but they've created space for me they brought me into this space i should be grateful that this is happening to me and not ruffle any feathers yeah, absolutely. yeah yeah totally but i can tell you this if that happened to me now i would be completely different like i wouldn't get angry i would just calmly say just hold on a second Let's just go back over that. So what was going on there? So what happened? Explain to me what happened. Which retailer said they wouldn't stock my books because I'm Indian? Come on, let's let's talk about it. And But do you know why I would say it now? Because I've been having these conversations on my podcast with, you know, esteemed people like yourself, having these conversations, raising them up, processing my own baggage that I've picked up over 30, 40 years of not talking about it. And now again, no, you know what? I feel secure in who I am. I'm going to say it. So that's why I think books like yours, raising visibility of this is just so important. And it's important for people like you to share these experiences because I think when you voice these concerns, then people who might not be as established can also see this happening to themselves and feel that they're justified in questioning it. And I think 
it's important that we're having these conversations because now openly people are questioning these implicit racism that exists in so many of our domains that we think are very fair-minded and egalitarian. We recently talked about openly about the advances that people get and we saw disparities in authors of color and white authors. And even at the same stage of their career, they were getting hugely different publishing advances and contracts. We are seeing how very few people of color are in publishing domain. And that makes a difference. If you are the only Indian author in a room full of white people, then how are you going to feel confident to even question something like that, whatever stage of your career you are at? So I think that's why we need more people in every domain as well. Yeah, it's... it's um. It's funny, this morning, I was thinking, okay, uh, Dr. Agawa is going to be here shortly. Let me just have a quick flip. And I thought, oh, let me just have a look how things have changed. I looked in the Apple podcast charts in the UK. I looked at the top 50. And I thought, how many non-white hosts are there? This podcast is currently, I think, number 14 or 15 in all UK podcasts. Michelle Obama's one is, I think, about 35, 36. And that's it. Every other host... Was white person. Was white. What would you say to that? I mean, is that because we have less talent and therefore only 48 out of the top UK 50 podcasts in terms of most listened to are hosted by white people because they're better and more able to articulate messages in podcasts? Or is it something else? Gosh, there would be so many issues with it, isn't it? I mean, so many things. First of all, I suppose, who feels confident enough to put themselves forward and say that they have a story worth telling or that they have a voice that people are going to listen to. Secondly, I suppose, there's also about representation. If people don't see people like them doing a podcast, then they might think nobody's going to be interested in my podcast, so they might not put themselves forward. It might be because of confirmation or affinity bias that people only listen to people who are more like them or who think that they're going to relate more to. So if there are more white people listening to it, then maybe they will listen to people like them. It's also could be because of um, who gets promoted, who gets more visibility, who is considered more marketable. We know, I mean, if we relate the same thing to books, we know that the kind of books that get commissioned sometimes are because there's an assumption about what the readership is and what they'll be interested in. So even if certain people of color get promoted, it's because they're talking about immigration or they're talking about something that they think a white audience would be interested in from that perspective. So they're pushed into a box. They can't just go into a podcast and talk about a dog because that's not what people of color do some are supposed to do. So I suppose there's there are all these stereotypes and biases that come into play. And and yeah, exactly. We don't hear a multitude of stories. We, yeah. we It is all whitewashed. So we only think these stories are worth telling. These stories are worth listening to. Um, we know that social media algorithms are also biased. They get promote, they promote certain people. We t- saw that certain black and brown commentators on social media, especially Instagram, and don't get as much visibility as white commentators. We also exist in echo chambers. So people are talking, we only listen or read sometimes books or listen to podcasts that other people are talking to, about. So if our community is like that, and they're only promoting certain things or talking about certain things, we want to, to listen to that. And people stay in these echo chambers and they never break out them. So 
those podcasts or those books don't never get to the kind of best selling charts because they even if they are as good as them so i think it's such a so many myriad of things yeah it's just so many things that come into play in this but i think for a child i suppose it's so important for them to understand that their stories are worth telling that they their voice matters no matter what background or culture we give them that confidence as they're growing up that they see representation i think that's why we talk about diversity in books we talk about diversity in media that they see representation as well yeah uh, what we're talking about really is bias so now might be a good time to sort of define what is bias and then sort of maybe sort of dive into how that bias shows up when it comes to race. So bias is something, just a preference for some things. So we're talking about just now as a parental bias and that's a positive bias because all of us want to think our children are the best and that's kind of an evolutionary thing. Otherwise, how would we deal with some of the most difficult situations that we are in as a parent when we are completely exhausted? Um, we want, to, so that's a positive bias. There are positive biases, like we feel certain affinity to people who, who go to the same university, who support the same football team those kind of things, because we want to build our communities. Everybody wants to feel belonging, a sense of belonging. But when this bias turns into prejudice or negative discrimination against a certain group, because they're not part of our in-group, they are different, they're treated as othered, or they are not considered as good as somebody else, then that is toxic. That's harmful in our society. A bias has different layers. So there's individual biases that we all carry, which are formed because of certain templates or stereotypes we've built into our brain. There could be interpersonal bias because of our individual biases. We discriminate against somebody or we prejudice against somebody. But because of the historic and legacy, uh, the nature of oppression that's carried through because of slavery or other forms of oppression, there are certain societal or systemic or structural biases that are built into it, which means that there are hierarchies of power of who has more power than others. And all these are a, are kind of a vicious cycle because our individual biases feed into the systemic and structural biases and our systemic and structural biases reinforce our individual biases. So race is such a prominent example of it because Race is a social construct. Race doesn't really, has no biological basis to it. We have all share 99.9% .9 similar genes. There's less diversity in humans than fruit flies, you know. But it was built as a construct because people wanted to justify in the past that they could oppress certain people, that they could say certain people with certain biology or certain skin color are less intelligent, less able to manage themselves so we can go in and manage them or oppress them and we are more intelligent. So I think those kind of, it, that's why it was constructed. Race might be a social construct, but its manifestation as racism is is very real. So it's its effects are very real because of the notion of race and racialization, which means these racialized hierarchies were built, there is certain still a notion of who has more power. So this kind of white supremacy we talk about, that people have this belief that whiteness is better in some way. We know from research that children as young as three years old start believing that white 
so fair skin is better or they choose white or fair skin dolls over black dolls children of all background and ethnicity because that's what they see around them it's it, and what's interesting about that for me is you say people and and children of all ethnicities yeah. will choose the white doll not just the children with white skin yeah because that's what they're seeing around them because the way that white supremacy or whiteness permeates permeates a society they see more white people in books they see uh, more white skinned people in films or media or cartoons they also see that blonde hair white skin is a princess and people with dark skin dark hair is a witch that's how a lot of films were are designed or our books are designed that's disney's mo yeah right? absolutely so my 4 year old three, when she was a year ago she came back from nursery and still she wants to be elsa because she's seen frozen and she wants to have blonde hair and she's like i don't like dark hair because blonde hair is better because she goes to a school where everybody has fair skin and blonde hair and she's the only child with dark skin and dark hair and i have to address it right there and then rather than thinking of it as a childish fantasy because for me it's really important for her to take pride in what she is and who she is because that's where it starts happening that they start getting body image issues what can you really do about that because let's say your daughter at 4 says i want to be elsa okay which is completely understandable in her head of course i've just seen this wonderful epic film yeah i want to be elsa right that in her head that makes complete sense So as a her mother you can bring that up and try to have that conversation with her. But does it make a difference because that's well I of course I'd love to know what you would say about that. But if we're trying to use rational arguments to explain something but then she still goes back out into a world where that is what she's getting fed there's a conflict isn't there? there's a conflict and that's why this work has to happen regularly and consistently it's not enough for me to just say it right there oh no your dark skin is beautiful or your black hair is beautiful that's not enough i have to reinforce this again and again and yeah. again because she's getting this message again and again outside so this work cannot be done just when black lives matter protest is happening or just when a child sees a murder of a black man on television or newspaper it has to happen every day What was really striking in the book is at some point can't remember where you say well I noticed you very much focus on early years and you say by 9 years old children's views are fixed and I paused when I read that and I thought about it I thought oh no my son's 10 <laughs> my daughter's nearly there But then I thought okay this is really really interesting. I mean you do recognize that there's an individuality with children mm-hmm. and they all develop at different uh different weights and at different ages which I thought was a really lovely part to read. But you're really making the case that we need to start way earlier than 9. Right? Now how early do you think we should start? And do you think that answer is different if you are have a child with brown skin with black skin? or with white skin. Really hope you're enjoying the conversation. Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Blue Blocks Glasses, one of the sponsors of today's show. But there's no question that getting high quality sleep is one of the most impactful things that we can do 
for our health and well-being. You see, sleep is when our brain clears out a lot of the metabolic waste that builds up inside it throughout the day, and a chronic lack of sleep can negatively impact our well-being. It can impact our mental health, our physical health, our relationships, as well as our ability to focus and concentrate. Now, one of the biggest obstacles today to good quality sleep is excessive blue light exposure, particularly in the evenings. And that's why I'm a huge fan of blue blocks. I've been wearing their glasses for over two years now, and they make really high quality lenses that protect you from the damaging effects of too much blue light. I personally wear their clear lenses in the day if I'm gonna be on my computer for long periods of time and therefore exposed to lots of artificial light. It's really helped me with my focus, my ability to concentrate, and it's also reduced my fatigue levels. I've also got a prescription pair of their red lens glasses, which I wear in the evenings if I'm gonna be on my laptop or phone, and I can definitely notice a difference in the quality of my sleep. I've been really impressed with their glasses, so much so that my wife and both of my children also have their own pairs. So if you wanna try them out, they're offering 15% off any glasses on their website for my podcast listeners. Simply use the discount code LIVEMORE, that's all one word, at the checkout for 15% off. Or you can go direct to their website at blueblocks.com forward slash live more. That's B L U B L O X.com forward slash live more. And the discounts will be automatically applied. Athletic Greens are also sponsoring today's show. Now, we all know that nutrition is important for many different aspects of our health and well being, our physical health for sure, but also our mental health. Now, in an ideal world, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole foods. But the truth is, as I've seen time and time again with many of my patients, that a lot of us struggle to consistently do that. That is why I am a fan of high quality whole food supplements like Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens make one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I've ever come across, and it contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, probiotics, digestive enzymes, and I myself take it regularly. So if you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a new special offer where you get 10 free travel packs with your subscription. You can check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. If you'd asked me this question um, a few years ago, maybe I would have said something different. But I think now, as I'm reading more scientific research, with also based in my personal experience, but also talking to lots of diverse parents, I realized that although it is different, black and brown parents start talking to their children much earlier, at least black parents do, I know. I think we have to address racism within South Asian community in a different way, I think, the way that it manifests. But black parents have to start talking to their children much, much younger because they, about how black boys are treated. We know that in schools, black and often brown children are penalized and punished more for the same kind of demeanors. But 
I think this has to happen for all children because we are linking it to how their sense of identity is formed, how their own notion of their self, but also other people's selves are formed. So it's it's not just a responsibility of white parent to do that, of a brown and black parent, but for every parent, because it has to happen from a young age in the way that we unlearn our biases as parents, first of all, because we all carry stereotypes and biases. And children are like sponges when they're young. They're picking up all these implicit messages. They're looking at us, our facial expressions, the way we talk about certain people, the offhand remarks, the books that we bring into our house, the media that we are bringing into our house, the things we are talking about, how we're treating other people, Am I crossing the road when I'm seeing somebody coming towards me because I'm feeling fearful? They're picking up these cues and they become similarly, similarly fearful of people of certain skin color if they see their parent doing that. So I think at a young age, very young age, what we have to do as parents is to unlearn our biases and yeah. to make sure that we are bringing in diverse books and media. We are exposing them to it. We are picking up on any of these assumptions very young at very early on and questioning it and challenging these stereotypes in our children from yeah. a young age. Yeah, as I shared before, my bias has always been not talk about it, yeah. pretend it's not there. Um, very much I absorbed my dad's modus operandi, which was very much, I think, very typical, certainly in the 60s and 70s of Indian immigrants coming over to the UK. I'm, I'm sort of very familiar with that, particularly with doctors, because that's what I grew up around, mm. it's very much uh, keep your head down, don't say anything, just don't make a fuss, make sure you're top of the class, because if you're top of the class, you're going to succeed in life. That, that was literally my upbringing. It's like, you know, if you come second, it's like, well, well hold on, why didn't you come first? Yeah. Um, and I, that came from love, right? That came from a desire that, hey, we don't want you guys to go through what we're going through. And the way we can try and ensure that doesn't happen is by, you know, if, you, if you're top of the class, if you go to the best universities, if you get the best jobs, actually you're going to be fine in life. And I, I do, like with many things, if I was having kids now, fresh, I'd probably do things a little bit different. But I, I'm sure many parents are like that. You know, once yeah. you know better, yeah. you do better. But my wife shared something with me this morning over breakfast. She said when my daughter was four, she had taken a swimming my son might have been swimming and they were watching. And she said to, to, to my wife, mommy, is that another brown? Is that, is, that, is that little girl got brown skin like me? And she said, yeah. She goes, oh, that's, and I can't remember how she said it, but it was, she noticed it. She said, oh, it's sometimes, lonely, it's sometimes lonely being the only one with my source of skin. It broke my heart hearing yeah. that. But then the point of that is this is real as you said right at the start, kids are noticing this. Whether we say it or not, if we don't bring it up, they can draw their own conclusions. Yeah, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? And I can relate so much to that about being the best so that nobody will ever question you, so that you'll always have the space. And I think I was brought up like that, being the girl, so that there yeah. was the whole session of patriarchy that you have to be the best because you're a girl. You have to prove yourself. But then we moved here and my oldest daughter, yes, that's how I was bringing her up. I wanted her to be the best. She went to schools where she was often the only brown child. She went to orchestras and national ensembles where she was the only brown person. She went to Cambridge where in a college, chose a college 
which was not diverse. So she was one of the very few brown people there. And for her, she wanted to also pretend race doesn't exist. So it doesn't matter if it's not diverse. Why? How does it matter? I'm going to be one of the best. So it doesn't really matter. But I think no matter how you're seeing yourself, you're still being seen as, and these barriers are there. These barriers will always be there. So I suppose every child wants to feel a sense of belonging that there are other people like them. So I remember I took her to a conference in Stanford once she was presenting a poster and suddenly there were all these in children of Indian origin there as they are at these things, but it was California and these parents of in Indian parents and suddenly my child saw these people who were like her, who shared some of the similar things that they were facing at home with their parents. She could talk to them about similar things. And suddenly for the first time, she felt really secure in who she was, not ashamed or embarrassed of being what she was. And I think that was really a striking moment for me as well to realize how much we need these communities how much we need representation, how much our children need role models sometimes as well to see other yeah. people out there talking about these things like them. You're right, people need role models. If, if someone's listening to this, right, and they go, okay, I get what you're saying. Um, let's say it's a, it's a family with white skin and their child at their school there's only one Asian kid or one kid with black skin. Is there anything they can do to help? I think it's really important that we don't, again, tokenize this kind of being an ally. We shouldn't really tell our children that they have to actively choose a particular person as a friend just because of their skin color. Yeah. You know, it's important that we say that they don't have the white savior complex, that they're going to go and rescue this person because they're brown or black. They might not need rescuing, you know. They're probably really confident and they might not need a white friend to come and rescue them. But I think it's important we create opportunities for our children where they can interact with other children from other backgrounds and cultures of all sorts so that they know that a person who has brown skin or a black skin doesn't necessarily act in a certain way, that they not just wear a sari or celebrate Diwali or they are fighting for their rights or um, opposing uh, slavery or oppression, but they are doing just normal things every day as well. You know, they really, it's really important for white children to understand that, that they are, they are like everybody else. Like people are just doing normal things, no matter what their skin color. But if they see somebody being treated differently because of their skin color, a child should be able to acknowledge that, understand why it's happening, um, be able to talk about it at home so that they can talk, create an environment where the child can come and say, I've noticed this. Why do you think this is happening? And have a conversation around it, not feel awkward and uncomfortable about it. But also, depending on the age, a child can be an ally. So if they see something happening, they can either tell a parent or a teacher that this is happening. They, If they see a child being lonely because of their skin color or isolated, they can create an opportunity to go and talk to them and sit close to them and yeah. empathize with them. I think it's really important that children learn the value of ally allyship from a young age as well. Yeah. What your book does really well, it does many things well, um, 
but it gives voice to this as an issue. It raises visibility. It brings it out of the dark and into the light. It gives people a vocabulary, a structure to actually start having these conversations, which is, I think, one of the missing pieces that's been, we can raise awareness, we can talk about it on social media, but actually people need help, right? Many of us need help. Mm. Um, so, you know, for example, let's say someone's listening to this and again, let's say it's, let's say it's because I feel very conscious that it's, as I said at the start, I'm aware that we've both got brown skin, right? Coming into this conversation. And I want to make sure that it's inclusive to everyone because the way we create a fairer world is not by putting people off the topic. It's by getting people to go, yeah, I want to be involved. I want to help create that fairer, that equal world. So, but, but I know many parents feel uncomfortable. So if it's, let's say it's a family with white skin and let's say their child comes back and goes, mommy or daddy, why, why is, you know, two of my friends, why, you know, they've got, why have they got a different color skin to me? Have you got any advice on how they can navigate that if they feel discomfort? Yeah, I think as parents, we have to question our own discomfort. So as I say, I think every parent has to start this work from before they become parents, but <laughs> certainly after they become parents, to start reflecting on their own biases. Why do you feel un discomfort around this topic? It's like anything else, you know, it race is racism or race or our skin color is part of who we are, um, why is there discomfort around it? Is it because you don't have the right vocabulary? Then I suppose it's important that as parents, we learn the right terms and vocabulary and understand it ourselves so that we can talk to our children about it. Also, as parents, it's important to understand and acknowledge we don't know the answers to everything. You know, we can pretend, but we don't. So depending on the age, I think can, we can learn it among, around our own children. We can say, let's find it out ourselves together. There's yeah. so many resources out there. I actually don't know that myself, but let's do the work together. Let's find it out. And I think then it's really important for children to see that our parents don't know anything, but we can still do the work to find out everything. We don't know the answers to everything. And I think... I shared an experience happened a couple of years ago in the library. As I said, we are all one of, I'm the only brown skinned person in our, where we live. And a child pointed at me in the library and said, mommy, she's got brown skin, that lady. And her mother got really uncomfortable and pulled her away and said, shh. And I thought that was a really nice teachable moment where she could have said, oh, yes, all of us have different colored skin or like we have different color eyes, like we have different colored hair. That's what makes us unique. And she could have engaged with me or there are so many books now we can look at and say, look, everybody's unique. Everybody is different. And that's what makes us really special. That, right? That's such a wonderful yeah. example, because I've also experienced similar things to that. And it's amazing the discomfort in yeah. the parents. Like so many people will know this, you know, know when they're in the lift with a child and the child just says something which are like, oh, have they just said that, right? But, but why should a child not say that? Yeah. That's perfectly legitimate, but I guess then the onus is, is yeah. on us as parents to not shy away and go, oh, God, I'm so uncomfortable that my child has said that. I don't want, I'm going to pretend it hasn't happened, which again, the child's going to pick up yeah. on. It's actually leaning into it, isn't it? Saying, yeah. hey, you know, that's an amazing observation. You're right. You know, and look around. Can we see anyone else who's got different color yeah. skin? You know, um, you're right. It's a teachable moment. Yeah. And children do stare. Children are curious. And I think, as you said, children pick up on our discomfort and they're 
watching us to see how are we going to react. And I also shared another experience. We were coming back from India. We were sitting on Heathrow in, in, in a restaurant and uh, there was a Chinese American family sitting right next to us, very close. And they had small children. And my then two-year-old kept staring at them because she hadn't seen anybody with the same kind of facial features or same anybody who looked like that because we don't live in a very diverse area. And I think she was watching us to see how we would react. Are we comfortable around yeah. them? And are we talking normally to them? What are we doing? So that because children at that age are fearful of unfamiliarity. At that age, it isn't bias or prejudice, but it will turn into it if we let it to turn into it. At that stage, they're only afraid of something that's unfamiliar. They're curious of things that are unfamiliar. So I think it's up to us to how to create the sense of comfort around these topics. I mean, that raises the question for me, is bias not an essential part of being human? Is it not something we've always used to keep us safe, to, to, to make sure we stick in our tribe? You know, and if it is, then are we actually trying to fight our innate human nature? Yes, <laughs> some of it is correct, because as I said in Sway, there is an evolutionary basis to how we created in-group and out-group. In a very, very distant past, our ancestors wanted to feel safe. They hadn't built immunity to a lot of diseases. They were res limited resources. They were fighting for these limited resources. So yes, there is a certain amount of primal instinct to stick with people who we feel are most comf we are comfortable with, who are like us, and we create these in-group and out-group mentalities. Only in real life, but also in social media, we create these bubbles. We only relate to people who share the same views, and we. Because there's less cognitive resource used up or cognitive load used up in trying to contradict what we already believe in rather than just look for facts that confirm our existing views. That's easier for us. But we are in a different world. We are not competing for the same kind of resources. We are not, not in the same kind of challenges like we were in very, very distant past. And I think now we are seeing that these biases can have very toxic and very harmful effects. We're seeing how these feelings of fear and threat of outsiders can be tapped into by politicians, by media to create yeah. these divides and deepen these divides. And when we do that, then we are really setting up walls where none exist, I think. Yeah, that, I think you, you made that point so brilliantly. And I think... I always think of the phrase, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. I'm really conscious of how I put information out into the world. You know, I, I try my best to come from a place of compassion, uh, non-judgmentalness, love, because I think if I want that world for my kids to grow up in, and frankly, for me to inhabit, I've got to do that bit in my part of the world. And there's, so there's a wider point that if we don't, as parents, engage with this, on some level, we're actually contributing to inequality and many of these kind of divisive problems that currently exist in society. Absolutely, so much. And I think as parents, we are so responsible for the world we create for our children. And these are the people who are going to grow up and going to inherit, but also these are the people we can empower to create change as well. Yeah. And I have so much hope for the next generation because we're seeing that they... I see with my children, with my daughter, they are so much more responsible and socially conscious yeah. and more fair-minded already. But we can really, really 
support them in in knowing how to create change as well and why they should create change as well we know that the pressures children are facing from social media from their internet as we are all doing distance learning and working from home so much we know people get radicalized on the internet we know that they're seeing so much divisive opinions and views out there that children are susceptible to believing so unless we have these op- honest and open conversations at home how are we countering those pressures that our children are facing from the outside world you mentioned online learning and before the summer when schools were closed and the uk was in lockdown an interesting thing happened so my my kids were very fortunate that their school put an online curriculum together and so they were doing this curriculum i think it was on google classroom and you know occasionally you know someone would post something and everyone would jump on and get involved and there'd be these long threads now the headmaster's really uh, i've always been impressed with the headmaster he's incredible he's very interested he actually grew up in liverpool okay. which is obviously where you live and he's always struck me as someone who really values fairness and equality and not long after the george floyd Uh, murder that's obviously sent shockwaves around the world he posted a photo i can't remember what it was but he posted something on google classroom about equality mm-hmm. and about not discriminating uh, against race and it was really interesting hardly anyone commented my two commented and i think one other child from mixed race background commented right and i remember it because my wife and i had a conversation about it thinking this is interesting isn't it why is it on every other thread everyone's getting involved and putting in their v- and giving emojis and whatever but on that one deathly silence and i think this speaks to one of the main hurdles that we've got to overcome which is this discomfort right so people move away and don't want to engage and i think that's one of the biggest obstacles to this entire movement is how do you get people who don't necessarily feel it's relevant to them how do you get them to engage yes and i think that's such a kind of a poignant example i think a really powerful example because i think for a long time race and racism has been considered a problem of people who face it uh of people of color they're talking about race and racism it's not a problem for people with white skin or white people because they don't encounter it in predominantly white societies and unless children have had these open conversations at home how do they know how to react to these things again they might think it's not my problem it's only aimed at people who are got darker skin or who are from brown and black backgrounds it's targeted at them it's aimed at them. it's nothing to do with me because i'm white i think the way sometimes also there is a feeling that there's a white guilt associated with it as well where parents don't talk about it i saw that a lot around black lives matter suddenly that was manifesting in everybody trying to get reading lists and getting <laughs> trying to talk about to the children i need to do this work now we've been talking about it for a very long time why is this work suddenly happens when a black man is killed in the street it's a good time to do it but why is this work not happening all the time there's a white guilt associated with it that oh because because there is a talk about 
black or brown people being facing racism, am I part of this in some way because I've got white skin? And that discomfort also comes from that feeling of guilt. I think that is why these discussions have to happen in a way that don't make any specific individual as a victim or an oppressor. I think it's important for children to know just because I've got white skin doesn't mean that I have to act in the same way or I do act in the same way. Or just because I've got brown and black skin, I will always be treated in the same way. I think that is also a nuance that we need to focus on in these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the guilt. Because ultimately what's happening there, you know, whenever we feel the discomfort, often it's just a mirror being shone back on us that we've got something that we haven't processed ourselves. And I think, I mean, you know, I wanted to talk to you about terminology because we live in a, in a very politically correct world where the way we say things is really important. So a term you've used during this conversation is people of color. Are you a fan of the term? I'm not a fond of I'm not fond of any term, but I'm not fond of BME either. BAME. Don't get me started on that term. <laughs> I, I I've got to be honest. Like I don't know the the history of that term. I can't stand it. I don't resonate with it. I'm like, what? B-A-M-E, black and minority. I mean, I just, I, 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 there's no part of that that speaks to me. I think, don't think we have the right vocabulary for it because ultimately, because we are talking about white and non-white, I don't like non-white because it's centering whiteness. It's saying white is the, the major thing that we're talking about and everybody else is non-white. So I don't like non-white either. I suppose people of color is used a lot in the US, not in the UK. I I talk about it or I use it because it is demarcating a skin color, I suppose. And I think that's why I prefer it to BME or non-white. I use minority ethnic communities usually because it's about saying everybody has an ethnicity, but we are talking about the people who are in the minority yeah. in it. It's hard because... Again, when we talk about discomfort, if we get the term wrong, yeah. man, particularly yeah. these days with cancel culture yeah. and all sorts of things, you you know, you can be eaten alive, yeah. particularly, I will say this, particularly if you've got white skin and you use the wrong yeah. term, man, you will probably never venture into that topic again because <laughs> you're like, what's, yeah. you know, I try to engage, but people say, you've got to do the work, you've got to do this, it's up to you. And I really feel that if we want to make change, yeah. we've got to get rid of blame, we've got to stop trying to judge people for what they do or don't know. Like anything, once you know, you know. Yeah. Anything, when you don't know, it's confusing. You know, if you've never heard the term before, and let's say whether you did or didn't know anything about racism, and let's say the George Floyd death shocked you. And you go, wow, I had no idea that still goes on. Right, that's an opportunity for someone to learn. Yeah. But I, I saw a lot of people trying to mm. and getting hammered online for trying to say, hey, look, you know, what can I do? And it's like, you're being lazy. You need to do the work. And look, I get it. There's charge on both sides here. And, and people I feel who've been um, discriminated against for many years, maybe within their families, probably feel charged as well. It's like, well, well, you go, you go and start looking it up. You know, why, why do I need to now educate you? I get it. I totally understand it. I, I genuinely, yeah. I hope I'm not judging anyone. I'm really trying not to. But I just feel if we want to make change, 
we've got to lead with kindness and go, okay, yeah. all right, well, you know, why don't you start with this and this? Uh, because I think guilt is a real thing you, you saw in that library when someone points out the mum doesn't use it as an opportunity to teach. She moves away. Um, and actually, that brings me on to the topic of white privilege, mm-hmm. which you actually give a really beautiful explanation of that. Um, but I, I was reflecting on it this morning. And I thought, do you think that's a helpful term? I'll tell you why I say that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think any term is perfect because we need a way to describe things and we don't have a language we can't move on. But I think that term might turn some people off straight away to not even engage in a conversation. I can see why people get defensive. And I have a, I face that a lot when I'm talking about it in, in my talks and workshops. But I always say privilege exists with all of us. And white privilege yeah. is just one form of privilege. I might have brown skin, but I have certain privileges in terms of education or whatever, financial resources or whatever that certain brown people might not have. So I know that I have those privilege. White privilege is just one form of privilege, which means that doesn't mean to say that you people with white skin haven't faced any barriers or obstructions in life. Just means that racism is not one of the barriers that they faced or they're likely to face in predominantly white society. It means that Constantly thinking about racism or microaggression is not something that they have to worry about every day. Class is a a huge barrier to people. So that's why we need to think about intersectionality of privilege. A white working class person will not have the same privileges as a white middle class, white upper class person. So we need to think about these things. And that is when we stop making it into an oppression Olympics where people say, don't you think working class people suffer more than brown people? Or It's not an Olympics. It's not a context. People have faced different oppressions, different framework of oppression, different structures of oppression based on their context. White privilege, I think, is a very important term to consider that we live in a society where whiteness is the norm. When I a white person goes out into a shop, they're less likely to have the security guard follow them around than a black man who goes around. They're less likely to be racially profiled. I talk of an incident when with my nine-year-old, I was stopped by a police. I have privileges as an educated. I was a professor. I was still stopped, stopped in the street because somebody complained against us. They thought that we were shoplifters because we had brown skin. That was a huge moment for me and for my nine-year-old to face because you suddenly realize my skin is something still a barrier and obstruction and the way I've seen. So I think white privilege is an important term as is intersectionality of privilege as any other kind of privilege. And I think I give lots of examples of that in the book about how do we acknowledge this notion rather than getting defensive about it. It's not to say that you're not facing any barriers. It's not to say you haven't had any disadvantages. It's just to say that you've got a racism-proof bubble, which many other people who do not have white skin will not have. Yeah. And it's not, you know, ultimately what we're talking about, you know, at it really, if we sort of go to the 30,000-foot view, it's it's bias. There's all kinds of bias. There's sexism bias. You know, it's well acknowledged that women have been discriminated against Mm -hmm. for many years. Mm -hmm. It continues to happen. It doesn't mean that because that is the case, I need to feel guilty as a man. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like you can acknowledge it and go, what can I do to help ensure that this doesn't continue or I do my bit? But 
I, I guess the the, the sort of the, the wider point I think is, I mean, if anyone's listening to this and any of the topics are making you feel uncomfortable, I'd ask them to ask themselves why. Mm-hmm. What's it reflecting back onto you? What's making you feel uncomfortable? And I'd urge you from the from the bottom of my heart. Don't move away from the discomfort, lean into it, learn about yourself, learn what it is. Why do I feel uncomfortable talking about this? Uh, Because I feel a great way to live life is to look for discomfort, look for friction. I go, why is that bothering me? Because I think that's where the gold is for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. We have to sit with this discomfort. And if we don't, then we don't create change. To create change, we have to. Otherwise, we stay in our cushy bubbles and we feel comfortable. And then we just accept how things are. And we accept it as status quo. We just think that this is how the world is. And we'll just try and fit into this world rather than create any kind of fuss or uh, discomfort for anybody. But yes, I think we can all do our bit. We can all create change. Sometimes people might also think it's just me, one person. How is it going to matter? I think we have a responsibility to engage with different views. We have a responsibility to learn every day, educate ourselves. We have a responsibility to be open-minded, kind, as you say, compassionate. Empathy is a huge thing about countering bias because unless we really step into somebody else's shoes, we don't know their perspective. It's about accepting that there's not just one view on this world, there are multiple perspectives. And until we hear these multiple perspectives, we don't know what other people's lives have been like and how they've lived and how what experiences they have so i think that's really important for all of us to do are there tools and techniques that you talk about in your book are they only relevant for us living in a white predominant society or let's take india for example where you know it's it's not white predominant it's brown skin are the probably are the majority and racism absolutely exists there i think it's important to to recognize that there are other forms it's not we're, we're living in a, a white dominant society so we're, we're we're talking about it in a specific context yeah but it also has relevance in non-white dominant societies as well doesn't it absolutely and as you say within indian or other south asian communities there are other forms of biases and discriminations that really exist. And we have to understand those hierarchies. Again, it's a matter of hierarchy, how those hierarchies are formed. In India, for instance, I talk in Sway more, but also a little bit in this book about how South Asian communities have to counter racism within their communities as well. And so for our children to understand that racism is not just black and white. It can come from within their own communities as well. Colorism is a feeling or a view that fair skin is better. And that is so deeply entrenched in a lot of communities that from a young age, a girl especially, again, it's it's intersectionality with gender. Women are made to believe that fair skin women are much better. They are more desirable. They're more beautiful. So they get better jobs or better opportunities. And dark skinned women especially, but also men feel shame within themselves. And that is also a legacy of imperialism that is persisted that in some way, whiteness is better. And that has created an anti-black sentiment within our community, which means that 
that we see from a young age in Bollywood, in books, how black people are made fun of or blackness is made fun of. And that is something we have to counter as a South Asian community, as a brown person. And when Black Lives Matter was happening, I really questioned that on Twitter, but also on other social media about what are we doing as our community to really understand yeah. that we can be contributing to this as well. All of us might carry internalized racism as well, which means that we think that we need to behave in a certain way to have more power in society, which means that we might see people discriminating against people of our own color, skin color as well, or our own community as well, because once we are at a certain position, we might not want to understand what other people of the same skin color are facing. So yes, I think caste is a huge issue in India, of yeah. course. Caste hierarchy is is a huge factor in discrimination, and we have to accept and acknowledge that people of higher caste have opportunities and privileges. Yeah. Caste privilege is certainly a big thing. So I think it's so important for us to reflect within our own communities as well. Yeah, no, no, very, very important points, I think. You know, I was thinking about terminology and... You know, I've really changed the way I describe things over the past few years. We're, we're the many things in life in terms of identity and how we label things. And I've actually, when I talk about different people now, I don't know if you've noticed in the conversation, but I typically will say people with white skin, people with brown skin, people with black skin, because I feel that's, and it's, I guess we're all trying to do the best we can, right? We don't want to offend. I want to be factual without labeling and to me, that feels good to me because I'm like, okay, that's a factual comment. It's a yeah. person with white skin rather than a white person. And you may say, what's the difference? And I guess to me on an individual level, I prefer saying a person with white skin because it, for me, I feel I'm less labeling a group of people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's that's important that we find our own terminology that we are comfortable with as well. But we also prevent ourselves from as much as we can from labeling people. Yes, skin color is an identifier, but people have their own identity that they can define as well, and they should be able to. Although skin color is a strong identifier, that's why I say brown and black people and white people, because that's how a person is perceived or seen yeah. first, you know. And people who are mixed heritage or mixed race, which is often used, find it tricky, I think, find it much trickier because yeah. they might be white passing, they might have white skin, but they might not be a white person. So I think saying a person with white skin is perfectly valid because a person with white skin might not identify as a white person. They might have half black heritage or brown heritage or any other form of heritage which they might feel closer to. So I think mixed heritage people or children, I think it's a very tricky conversation, yeah. which I also address in the book about how important it is for them to you, have this conversation. Yeah, you absolutely do. And, yeah. and I don't think, it's funny, is it when you really think about it, you can really see that identity yeah. could get really tricky if, let's say, you look different from one of your parents yeah. um, or people perceive you a certain way. And it, it must, yeah, I, and I know that is something, I guess, with your twins, is it, mm -hmm. that you are particularly mindful of. Yes, and and... I I'm 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 always like slightly thinking about the fact that they they don't have very dark brown skin they don't have brown skin at all they're lighter skin so they'll all be be white passing they can easily pass off as Mediterranean or anybody so the only brown skin person they see is me and that is 
or their older sister, which shapes their perception of what is good or bad. So yeah. if they show preference for their father because he's got white skin or they say, your skin's really dirty, mommy, it suddenly raises a lot of red flags in me, which I have to really, really sit with it for a while, the discomfort to find, figure out whether it's just a childish way of creating their own sense of identity or actually they have some biases against darker skin, which can project onto other people with darker yeah. skin as well. So I think for mixed heritage, it's really tricky about how we support them to take pride in their sense of mixed mixedness, I think, yeah. to take pride in that rather than having to choose one side or the other as well. Yes. I, think. I mean, so important. Um, just thinking about what you said about what we're exposed to and what we see around us. Um, I read about a year ago that since Mohamed Salah came to Liverpool, yeah. so if you don't know, striker um, of the Islamic faith, uh, becomes a hero, scores lots of goals. I read, and I don't know if you're familiar mm. with this or not, that uh, anti-Islamic racism sort of crimes or, or complaints have gone down hugely in Liverpool since he joined. I saw that, and I actually quote that in Sway as well, um, that research, because that is, shows the value of representation and role models, because he's proudly Muslim. And we know Islamophobia exists in our society. It's really deeply entrenched. He's proudly Muslim. He prays openly, talks openly about his faith. And he's somebody that people take pride in because he's such a good footballer. And I think that's a huge thing in Liverpool and Formby, where a lot of footballers live. Um, so yes, there, that has created a less, like countering some of the Islamophobic sentiments, I think, for a place which is not very diverse, which has yeah. a lot of racism that goes on. And I think that really shows that representation models, role models model matter. And also that really is important for people to see different view of people who they might have only seen in a negative way. So they might have only come across in media of Muslims being a certain way because of the yeah. messaging we get. So he's they're showing up, seeing a positive role model, I think. Yeah. And that's happened with Obama as well as a black man who came as president. And I think that countered a lot of you. We have to see how much that addresses the systemic and structural racism, though. On an individual and interpersonal level, that is really crucial in the way that they're perceiving. Um, but we have to make sure that somehow that gets filters in so that the systemic and structural racism that exists in a society, in our policies, in our institutions is also countered. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. In terms of our kids, then, just to sort of start sort of winding down this conversation, <laughs> um, of course, I would very much recommend people get hold of the book, uh, Wish We Knew What to Say. I think it's really good, really insightful, loads of practical tips. But for the listeners and the viewers, let's go through. So what are some of the things that parents listening to this conversation can do with their children? Uh, maybe we start from three, four, five, and then move up to sort of teenage years. But uh, I wonder if you've got a few sort of take-homes for people. Absolutely. I think there is so much. But the one thing we can, as I said before, we can all do is to start unlearning our biases and reflecting on our, our biases and stereotypes because the messages we give out to children is really important. Secondly, bringing in more diverse books, not just books which have tokenistic black or brown person in it, but books that actively shatter some of the stereotypes. So some of the books with diverse 
role models can also reinforce those stereotypes. So we want them to be exposed to a diverse media, diverse magazine, diverse books. And that has to happen from a very young age, that we are doing that actively. We actively question any kind of assumptions they have. So if they say anything, not be judgmental, not criticize them, not shush them up, but a more like engage with them, ask them why they are thinking that, how did they shape that view, form that view. And I think that kind of create a space which is non-judgmental for a child so that they feel comfortable asking any question from a young age. They don't feel like some questions are taboo, some topics are taboo in our family. So I'll just go and form my own views and opinions with it. As they grow older, I think it's important that we expose our children to as many diverse uh, groups as possible. So even if they don't have very diverse set of friends, maybe clubs or societies, which is, I know is tricky right now with um, our restrictions, but just so that they engage with people or they see people from different backgrounds and ethnicity and engage with them, hear diverse views and accents and skin colors and ethnicities. And I think that is really, really important as child grows older. History, I think, is really important for a child. No matter what skin color, a child has to have a sense of global history of where we came from. How did these forms of oppression happen? So taking them to like slavery museum or other other museums, there's loads of resources online as well. Having a more rounded view of history from what they're taught at schools. It's not just Tudors and Victorians. We talk about imperial history. We talk about other forms of other places. And I know that diverse books such as Martin Luther King or Rosa Parks, children read them, especially during Black History Month. But we have to help our children understand this is not just something that happened in the past. It still happens. And but it is important that they learn they can create change. So from a young age, they can be part of social activism. We can talk to them about if you see something like that, what can you do about it? What yeah. can we do? And if they see their parents getting involved in some of the social activism movements or doing something purposeful or meaningful like that, or actively challenging stereotypes, then they would be more inclined to do that as well. They can do simple things like raise money through uh, just giving, you know, do something that raises money for a charity that creates a social consciousness about yeah. privilege and who's not as privileged. Um, yeah. And I think as they grow older, maybe talk more, do more activities with them around scenarios. Like if you see racism or racial bullying happening or racial prejudice, what do you do? Who do you talk to? Who do you um, go and have a chat with? Um, how can you be a better ally? What do you do to support somebody who's not being as as supported at school? So I think just having these really conversations about politics, what's happening in politics? Yeah. I, what, what, what strikes me as you go through that, I think that's brilliant <laughs> tips, very helpful. But actually at its core, what you're talking about is having open and honest conversations with our children and recognise our, our own biases mm -hmm. or our own blind spots that maybe we weren't aware of, leaning into that, discovering it first for ourselves as adults mm -hmm. and then trying to have those conversations with kids. But also something really nice from earlier on in the conversation is it's okay to say, I don't know. Yeah. Actually, you know what, darling? That's a great question. I don't know. Should we find out the answer together? Mm -hmm. 
that is so powerful. And it was something that we often do with our kids. It's like, actually, I don't know the answer to that. At the weekend, why don't you spend a bit of time trying to figure that yeah. out? Um, Parker, I think, I think you're doing just incredible work. Thank uh, you so I, much, Rangan. I really do. I think these are important conversations. If people with platforms can't have these conversations, right? How are things going to change? How are people going to start having these conversations? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so incredible what you're doing to give this a platform or give talk to people with multiple stories because we need to hear different stories because we do need to. And the point of these conversations is not to create a divisive world because yeah. we want to remove divisions. We've, we're not saying any, anybody's better than other people or other people have need to have more advantages than others because that's absolutely what we're trying to shatter through any of these conversations. We want equality. We want fair-mindedness. We want everybody to have the same opportunities no matter what. And I think for that, we have to hear why some people are not having the same opportunities or they might have certain obstacles. And unless we hear that, how do we address it? And I think that's the crucial bit about we all are in this together. We all want equality. We all want fair-mindedness. Well, I think that's a wonderful place to finish off the conversation today. Um, as I say, you're doing incredible work. I really hope people go out and buy Sway, but also this new one. If, if people want just a little bite-sized sort of entry into this and some practical tips on how you can have these conversations with your kids, but also with yourself, I would say. Uh, it's called Wish We Knew What to Say, Talking with Children About Race. Uh, I think it's well worth people buying. Um, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more to talk about if we ever get to do this in the future. Thank you so much, Rangan. It's been lovely speaking with you. Thank you. Really hope you enjoyed that conversation about what I think is a really important subject. As always, do have a think about one thing that you might be able to take away and perhaps change in your own life. And please do consider sharing this episode with others who you feel may benefit. If you're a parent, perhaps you could share this with your network, perhaps on your school WhatsApp group with other parents, maybe with your school, the head teacher, other teachers, or even with friends of yours that might benefit from listening. And of course, you can always share on social media with your networks. If you do so, please do tag me so I can see what you're saying. I really hope that we can get these messages out there and spread them far and wide you can make a real difference in helping me get the word out, even if you just share with one other person. To learn more about Pragit, please visit the show notes page on my website. And before we finish, I just want to let you know about Friday 5. It is my brand new weekly newsletter that contains five short doses of positivity. A practical tip for your health, a book or article that I found inspiring, a quote that's caused me to stop and reflect. Basically, anything that I feel would be helpful and uplifting. Over 100,000 people now subscribe and the feedback I get each week really has been wonderful. Many of you tell me it's a fantastic way to finish off your week and get you set for the weekend. If this sounds like something you would like to receive every Friday, please do sign up at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. And don't forget, if you are new to my podcast, I have written four books now that are available to buy all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics like mental health, nutrition, sleep, stress, behavior change, and weight loss. So please do take a moment to check them out. 
and please do press follow on whichever podcast platform you listen on so you will get notified when my latest conversation comes out. A big thank you to my wife for producing this week's podcast and to Richard Hughes for audio engineering. Have a wonderful week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back in one week's time with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architects of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it because when you feel better, you live more.